Isaiah is the first major prophet of the Old Testament. It's about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the Old Testament. And we're near the back end of that book. We'll be in chapter 49 this morning, looking at verses 6 through 12. We just recently completed our series together, What We Believe, a study of the Apostles' Creed. And the week after Easter, we will be in the Old Testament, looking at the book of 1 Samuel, Seeking a King, the story of Samuel and Saul and David. In the interim, we will be today for an emphasis on missions, as we have missionaries with us this morning. And then the following three weeks, we will be looking at the biblical grounds for our vision statement, Worship God, Make Disciples, and Serve the Kingdom. The following two weeks, as Andrew mentioned, I will be in China. So you can pray for me, but I will be not able to be in the pulpit those two Sundays. But I'm pleased this morning for us to be in Isaiah chapter 49. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is is completely authoritative, and the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to support the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear, they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray this morning. O Lord, our God, Lord, we are so grateful that you have given to us your word. We ask, O Lord, now that your word would work upon us. That you, through your word, and by the power of your spirit, 
would enlighten our minds, renew our wills, and would bring us ever closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning we are looking at the concept of missions. The Lord, in His Word, puts an emphasis on missions. And this should not surprise us because one of the main reasons for missions is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of Jesus goes out throughout the world and He is glorified. Another reason for missions is a quote that you see on page 2 of your bulletin from John Piper. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And so missions is our means of telling people of the Lord Jesus Christ and of bringing them to the worship of the true and living God. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things that our Lord is telling us about Jesus Christ and missions. First, that Jesus is the light of the world. Second, that Jesus is the hope of the world. And then third, that Jesus is our message for the world. Jesus is the light. He is the hope. And he is our message. Let's begin then by looking at our text this morning in Isaiah 49. And let us understand the context for where we are. As we dive right into the middle of this text, right into the middle of chapter 49, part of the context for us to understand is that this is one of the so-called servant songs in Isaiah. That is, one of the songs about the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. This happens to be the second servant song, and there are four of them. In chapter 42, Isaiah introduces the servant of the Lord. Here in chapter 49, he talks about the mission of the servant of the Lord. In chapter 50, he talks about the obedience of the servant of the Lord. And then finally, in chapter 52, he speaks of the triumph of the suffering one, the servant of the Lord. And this is the story of the servant of the Lord who is tasked with redeeming his people. And so here we begin in verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So... The Lord begins our text by telling his servant, it's too small of a matter. It's too light of a thing for me only to give you Israel and Jacob. Now, this is an important thing because for the Israelites, they tended to be very provincial with God. They assumed that because God had chosen them, they were all that mattered to God. And even though God had said otherwise to them on many occasions, they began to assume that God chose them because of something in them. And so there started to be a mentality that outside of them, no one else mattered. 
There was no need to go out outside of Israel. That the nations, the people of the world, did not need to be addressed with the truth of God's word. We have a wonderful example of this. I think the best way to illustrate it is if you think of the story of the prophet Jonah. You may remember that Jonah was a prophet that God told to go to the city of Nineveh to tell them about himself and to tell them to repent. And Jonah said, sure, I'll go to the ocean. I'll find a boat. And I'll go as far as I can in the other direction to get away from those people. I want to be so far away from them, I don't even want them to overhear me talking to somebody else about God. They don't deserve to hear about God. They shouldn't repent. They're not a part of Israel. I am not going to them. That's kind of a capsule of the way many in Israel viewed the nations. But the thing is, if we're not careful, the church can fall into exactly the same trap. We tend to see ourselves as opposed to the world. The world is something to fight, to resist, not necessarily to be reached. We like the way things are in church, and we want our preferences kept. We don't want people to come in who don't know what's going on, don't know when to stand when, to, when we stand, don't know when to sit when we sit. They don't know all of the Bible stories. They don't know all of our theological shorthand. They may not pay as much attention as we would like them to. We don't like that. It makes us uncomfortable. And we can have the same mentality as Jonah and say, we don't need to go out and seek others. Far too often, the church's answer to the lost is to say, well, we don't lock our doors. They can come on in anytime they want. They can come to us. And that was the same mentality Israel had. But as we see here in the book of Isaiah, God thinks that's small thinking. God is a God of big things. His plan, his degree is a big plan. And no matter how hard it seems, he will accomplish it. You see, we tend to be the ones who are afraid to take risks. We're afraid that we won't succeed. And so we tend to judge whether something is to be done by whether we can bring it about. But you see, what Isaiah is telling us is the Lord wants us to change our mentality. We need to have big thoughts like our big God. He says, don't settle for small. It's a small thing to make you the servant who redeems Israel and Jacob, the Lord says to Jesus. Now, when he says it's a small thing, that doesn't mean it's nothing or it's worthless. Because after all, remember, God had redeemed Israel by going down into the most powerful empire in the world, Egypt. And by bringing plagues upon Pharaoh and his people such that the Egyptians drove the Israelites out. They set them free and paid them to leave. That's how powerful God was. But what God is saying here is that Jesus does so much more 
than redeem Israel. When we think about the church, the church is not nothing. It's not as if we don't matter. But Jesus is so much bigger and his mission is so much bigger than the current state of the church. I guarantee you that Jesus' work is not done. You're proof of it. If Jesus' work was done, he would return and issue glory. We are here on earth because Jesus still has souls to save. So the very fact that you breathe and think and act is a testimony to the bigness of the plan of God. And what Jesus is, Isaiah tells us, is a light not just for Israel, not just for Judah, but for the nations, for all of the nations around the world. Now, this includes those who are unlovely. We know this from the text. Because to Israel, the word for nations meant something. It doesn't have the kind of generic meaning it does to you and to me. The word in Hebrew for nations is goyim. And if you have ever been around someone who is ethnically Jewish, you will know that to use the word goyim is almost to use foul language. When you use that word, it describes the people who aren't like us, and we don't want to be like them. We try to keep them as far away from us as we can. They're the bad people. They're the nations. And what Isaiah is telling Israel and you and me is that Jesus is the light of the nations for those who are unlovely. Jesus is the light for people who annoy you, for people who attack you, for people who criticize you, for people who don't have Western values, for people who have never opened a Bible. Jesus is their light. He is the light For all sorts of people. The New Testament, after all, says this. In the book of Revelation, when we see the great worship service, this is what John writes. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from every tribe, and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You see, what God is declaring here for you and for me is that his salvation will reach the ends of the earth. Jesus is the light of the whole world. And I think perhaps more importantly, Jesus is the only light for the world. So who is this light of the world? What might we expect? We might expect the world to rejoice, to hear that there is light. For after all, who wants to be in the darkness, right? Have you had the experience of waking up in the middle of the night when all the lights are off and when it's dark? Kids, have you ever had that experience? You wake up and mom and dad are asleep and there's no light anywhere. It's pretty frightening, isn't it? You're not used to being awake in the dark. You're not used to the dark. It almost feels heavy. No one likes the dark. Mom and dad don't like the dark either. Because if mom and dad get up in the middle of the night and they have to go get a drink or exercise their legs, 
They're concerned they might step on something or bash their knee or trip and fall because you can't see in the dark. So we might expect the world to say, hooray, the light is here. But that's not what they say. There's actually something very different that we find. Look here in verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the redeemed of Israel and his holy one, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. What we actually see is out in the world, people despise Jesus. They hold him in contempt. It's like Jesus is beneath them and their sophistication and their dignity. Imagine the way that people's faces contort in this way. In almost a sneer. Oh, you want to talk about Jesus. I don't have any use for Jesus. I don't need a crutch. I don't need all these fairy tales. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be around it. You see... That's the reaction of most of the world to Jesus. But it even gets worse than that. Isaiah says not only is Jesus despised, he is abhorred by the nation. Now, abhorred is a pretty big word. So let me give you a word picture of what this means. Have you ever been driving around Houston and you stop at a stoplight and you see someone who is obviously homeless next to the road? The kind of person that just... Their clothes are horrible. They might have a patchy beard. You don't even have to roll down the window to know they smell. You really don't want to be around them at all. The kind of person that when you're at the light, if they're on your left, you look right to avoid making contact with your eyes. That's the way people view Jesus in the world. They want no part of him. They think he's horrible. Dangerous even. He's beneath them. He's a servant. But the wonder of who Jesus is, is that Jesus humbled himself voluntarily. He became humble in order to reach the nations. He stooped down to come down to our level. Now some take that as weakness on Jesus' part. As uselessness. But rather, it is a humility that Jesus took on to reach us. And in the midst of that humility, the Lord God exalted him. We see this here in verse 7. There is a promise that God makes that the Lord will make the nations see who Jesus is. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Kings and princes will submit. Those who follow the light will no longer be in darkness. Jesus is exalted by the Lord our God, and he is the solution to the problems of the world. Jesus put it himself this way in John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The second thing that we see beyond that Jesus is the light of the world is that Jesus is the hope of the world. Now the the, the Lord knows that the world needs 
hope. He should. He's the creator of the world. But after all, we can look around us and see that the world needs hope. Can't we? All around us we see injustice. We see wickedness. We see pain. We can see that there is a hope that needs to be brought to the hopeless. Now let me ask you a question to dwell on this morning. Have you looked deep within your own heart to see where your hope comes from? Where is your hope this morning? Where is your hope for this week? Where is your hope for your life? You see, God knows we need hope, and He answers our cries for hope, even if we are not aware or we do not express it properly. He answers it through the grace that comes in Jesus. In verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. You see, the grace that comes to us in Jesus is not something that we deserve. It is not something that God owes to us. After all, the whole world is off on its own, doing its own thing, trying to find its own solutions. Remember that the first response of the world is to despise Jesus. And so Jesus comes to us not only when we are hopeless, but when we don't want hope. Jesus brings a time of favor, Isaiah says. And this favor is the favor that one would hope to have with God. A relationship with God. The grace of God. This is the salvation that we need. And it comes to us from our Lord Jesus Christ. Even when we are opposed to him, he comes to us and he brings us hope. Do you need hope this morning? Then you need Jesus. Do you know people around you who need hope? Do you want to see the world change? They need Jesus. Jesus is the hope of our world. He changes everything by his grace. But the salvation that the Lord brings in Christ is not small. It's not stingy. Those who need salvation are not only given salvation, but they are also given Jesus himself. Look again at verse 8. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who in darkness, appear. You see, Jesus is given as a covenant to the people. That means that Jesus is a promise to us. All that he has becomes ours. So those who have lost everything gain it all. Those who are bound in chains are set free. Those who are in darkness are given light. Now, this does not mean that our lives will be perfect. I am not here to tell you this morning to believe on Jesus and you will never get sick 
You'll have more money than you would ever want, and all of your relationships will be perfect. Because that's not what the Bible says. That's a lie. And the real danger of that lie is, we think we believe in Jesus and we get sick and then we give up on Jesus because we think we were promised perfect health. We think we were promised money and wealth. We think we were promised a perfect marriage. And that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that when Jesus saves us, he not only saves us from something, he saves us to something. And so we can look to him. He saves us to a place with him where all of the effects of sin will go away. Hunger, pain, and wickedness will be no more when he returns for his people and he gathers us together in glory. Our hope is found in Jesus. The one who comes to us when we don't deserve it. And he brings us salvation and blessing. Well, the next question that comes to us is, how will people find out about Jesus? If Jesus is our message for the world, how will people find out about Jesus? And for most of us, the temptation is to jump right away into what we can do. I've got to go off and tell others. It's up to me. Unless I go out, no one will hear, and they'll all go to hell. It's all up to me. It's all on my shoulders. That's often our tendency. You see, then we begin to judge what's possible by what we can do. But I've got good news for you. The Lord knows you are not sufficient for this task. You can't do it. Remember we talked about that natural hostility of the world to Jesus? That is a barrier and an obstacle. Think of it this way. Moms, have you ever tried to get your kids to eat the vegetable that they hate the most? Maybe it's Brussels sprouts. Maybe it's broccoli. Maybe it's peas or green beans. And oftentimes what moms will try to do is say, You're going to finish that vegetable, and not only are you not going to get dessert, you don't get to leave this table until it's gone. Now, those of the children who happen to have a dog have an out. Because when mom's not looking, but if you don't have a dog, or if he's not hungry, sometimes the kids will sit at the table for hours on end. Sometimes mom has to give in because it becomes Bedtime. It's exceedingly difficult to convince a child to eat a vegetable that they hate. Now think about that in a spiritual context. Would it be then an easy task to go to people in the world who naturally despise Jesus, who naturally abhor him, and to tell him them that he is the best thing for their life and they must commit their lives to Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us that when we talk to others about Jesus, their first response is not usually, you know you're right. I can't believe I haven't been reading the Bible all this time. Where can we pray? 
That's usually not the first reaction. It's because of the hardness of their hearts. Our culture is hostile to Jesus and to his word. So what does the Lord do? The Lord goes before us and our message. He knows that there are obstacles in our way. Look at the way Isaiah puts it. In verse 11. I will make all my mountains a road. Now have you ever walked on a mountain? Hiked? Not a hill, a mountain. You know, steep climb, a lot of underbrush. Trees that hit you in the face as you walk by. No real path. Rocks in your way to trip on. Walking on a mountain isn't easy, is it? That's like an obstacle before us in the mission to tell others about Jesus. God is honest with us. He says, there are obstacles in your way. Now, what would we want? We would want to say to God, take those obstacles out of our way. Get rid of the mountains. We don't want to see them anymore. Is that what God says? That's not what he says, does he? He says, I will make my mountains a road. You see, what God does is he goes before us and he turns obstacles into opportunities for the gospel. He takes challenges and difficulties and he uses them to open up The gospel. Just think about it in one illustrative sense. If you were to know someone who was caught enslaved in a world of drugs, they ruined their entire life, their marriage, their family, their job. They've hit rock bottom. That's an obstacle to the gospel. But God makes it an opportunity because they know they've hit rock bottom. They know they can't do it themselves. They know they have nothing of value because everybody's been busy telling them they have nothing of value. It becomes a gospel opportunity to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a road we can take for the gospel. But God tells us he doesn't just raise up roads. Look at the rest of verse 11. And my highways shall be raised up. Now, if any of you have driven any length of time in Texas, you know the difference between a road and a highway, don't you? A road is something you can drive on, but it may be a dirt road, or it may have gravel on it. You can go, but you can't go that fast. You get out in some parts of Texas where there's a highway where you can see for 10 miles, there's not even any speed limit. You can go as fast as you can possibly go. Would you rather go from point A to point B on a windy, difficult road or on a highway? I know what my choice is. And you see, that's what God is telling us. He's not just going before us to make it a little bit easier. He goes before us to make it possible and to clear the way so it's like a superhighway for the gospel. This is important. Not only is God at work, He is at work first. He goes ahead of us so that we can have confidence that we are not alone. 
And we can be encouraged that he has prepared success for us. This is a call for action. We have no excuse for not taking the story of Jesus to the world. You see, oftentimes we can be bound up with the temptation of trying to make sure that everything is perfect. Now, it's okay to work as hard as we can, but sometimes we want everything to be so perfect, we can never get it just so perfect so we don't do anything. There's a wonderful quote on evangelism by D.L. Moody. He says, it's clear that you don't like my way of doing evangelism. He said this to a critic. You raise some good points. Frankly, I sometimes don't like my way of evangelism. But I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing it. And I think there's something to be said for that. God has prepared the way for us. And so we go forward with the gospel. Because that is what we are called to do. The Lord sends us out into the world with the gospel to declare that Jesus is the light of the world. Then he needs to shine in every corner of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And so he needs to dispel fear and hopelessness. Now, how does he do this? He does it through his people. The word of God tells us that we have a mission. Perhaps the best known passage with respect to this is Matthew 28. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. The call to God's people to take the message of Jesus to the world. But the Bible also tells us that this mission that the church is on, that you and I are called to, is the means of fulfilling the promise of God here in Isaiah 49, that Jesus is the light of the world and the hope of the world. I have this on good authority. The Apostle Paul. In Acts 13, verse 47, he tells the crowd that the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, the nations. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The people of God are the means that the Lord uses to bring Jesus to the ends of the earth. Are you ready today to declare the grace of God in Jesus Christ to a lost world? I want to give you some encouragement. The Lord goes before his people. And what he asks of us is not complex. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need a PhD. You just need a willingness to speak to others of the wonder of who Jesus is and what he has done. 
As I thought about it this week, actually the best way to sum this up is a children's song. Perhaps you remember it. Jesus bids us shine with a clear, pure light, like a little candle burning in the night. In this world of darkness, we must shine. You in your small corner, and I in mine. Jesus bids us shine then for all around. Many kinds of darkness in the world abound. Sin and want and sorrow. So we must shine. You in your small corner, and I in mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have reiterated to us through your word the call to bring the message of Jesus. To tell the world that he is the light of the world, the hope of the world. Lord, we ask this morning that you would direct our hearts to the Lord Jesus that we would so be filled with love for him that it would spill over into the rest of our lives, to our neighbors, to our family members, to our co-workers and friends. Lord, help us to be your mission to bring Jesus to a lost world. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.